from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome aboard, friends, into our new affiliates down in Birmingham and Huntsville, Alabama, Asheville, North Carolina, uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome. Welcome to uh, The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. One of the things that we do on this program is hopefully help you to see things in an entirely new light. Look at things differently uh, than they are reported to uh, to you in the uh, the mainstream media. Uh and uh present that information and then what you do with it I guess is is up to you, but uh, at least we can start that process. Because one of the things that uh, I've discovered over the last uh, 15 years doing this uh, program on the uh, on the radio is that things are not always as they appear. Reality is, um, in some cases, uh, programmed and massaged and uh, presented to us uh, sort of in a prepackaged form. Take the Arab Spring, this wonderful movement uh, that I guess really started in December 2010, an uprising in Tunisia, which saw the ouster of their president, uh, Ben Ali. Then it quickly spread to places like Yemen and Morocco. Uh, there was an uprising in Bahrain, or Bahrain, Egypt, of course, Libya, uh, and now Syria. We're all familiar with what's uh, going on in Syria. Horrible bloodshed, a civil war. But is it really as it has been depicted in the mainstream media, here in the West primarily? Are these uprisings grassroots uprisings? Are they populist uprisings from within, people demanding change? Or are they being helped along, perhaps even orchestrated by outside forces? Are there outside insurgents involved? That is the conclusion of uh, my next guest, who has really labeled uh, these movements as the fake Arab Spring, emphasis on fake. Stephen Lendman, is an independent researcher and the host of the Progressive Radio News Hour. He writes a popular blog about American imperialism, political persecution, and a wide range of other subjects. He's the author of How Wall Street Fleeces America, Privatized Banking, Government Collusion, and Class War. And he joins me tonight from his home in the Windy City, Chicago, Illinois. Stephen, welcome to the Conspiracy Show, my friend. Oh, thank you, Richard. I'm delighted to be on with you. Yeah, and it was it was a great pleasure meeting you in Chicago in person earlier uh, this spring. We were taping an interview for my uh, my television program, The Conspiracy Show, and that was an unbelievably cold, blustery day. Uh, so the Chicago, Chicago is not the windy uh, city for nothing. But but how's your summer going so far? <laughs> we have, well, I guess you could have the same in Toronto, Richard. We, we 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 seem to have long winters and short summers. And I must say, it's been a very strange summer in Chicago. July, the hottest summer in Chicago history. August, including today, uh, bloody chilly. My goodness, I'm, I'm wearing a heavy top. If we were on TV, you'd, you'd see me wearing something I wear in the winter times. My God, August traditionally is the warmest month in Chicago. Not this year. Now we're getting a cool one here as well uh, right now. Um, all right, on, on to the Middle East. You've been writing a lot about the revolutionary wave of demonstrations and protests, as I say, that swept across the Middle East beginning in December 2010. And 
You have dubbed it the fake Arab Spring, and we'll find out more about what you mean by that in a moment. Let's talk about Syria, because what we have there now is a full-scale civil war. The UN recently has pulled out all of its uh, observers, and um, there have been horrible massacres, horrible massacres. Uh, according to various sources, including the UN, up to 21,000, or somewhere between 21,000 and 28,000 people have been killed, half of those civilians, but also including... 10,000 armed combatants from both the Syrian army and rebel forces. Uh, and according to the UN, between 500,000 and 1 million Syrians have been displaced within the country. You see what's happening there, though, in a very different light. You've been writing that what's been happening in Syria is not a populist uprising, but an outright invasion by outside insurgents. Oh, Assad is absolutely right, Richard. This is an invasion. I make no bones about it. If you watch propaganda TV in America, they will completely get it wrong and, and feed you the potty line, which is exactly the opposite of what's going on. There's nothing in, in Syria going on that can be called an uprising or a revolution or a civil war. It's a disgrace to use those terms. Plain and simple, it's an invasion. Most of the elements fighting have been brought in from the outside. They're militants, they're mercenaries, they've been paid, they've been sold the bill of goods. I don't know what they tell these people. They feed them a pack of lies. I don't think these people really know what they're fighting for. All they know is they're getting paid, and, and, and it may be as much in the way of promises as actual cash in hand. How do you pay somebody? How do you give them money when, when they're fighting in a war zone? Where are they going to put their money? So I imagine a lot of it is promises, and if it's promises, a lot of them are never going to come through. Uh, as far as opposition goes, every country has opposition. I've made this point a few times. Every country has opposition. Syria has legitimate opposition that want a different kind of government. My goodness, Canada has opposition. America has opposition. The difference between Canada and America and the European countries where you see protests breaking out all the time, big ones, very angry people about what's going on, they do it nonviolently. They don't go out and shoot at each other. They don't kill each other. The fact that you've got these insurgents in, in Syria, uh, even if they were homegrown, which they are not, they may, be, they may be some homegrown, but the great majority have been brought in from the outside. I mean, they've come in with lighter weapons at first. Now they've got heavier weapons, and they are killing people. I mean, that is the stark difference between opposition there and what it really means compared to when you see angry people on Western streets, whether it's kids in Canada, in uh, Quebec, protesting about tuition fees, or Occupy Wall Street in America, or protests in Greece, or Spain, or Italy, the UK, Germany, all across Europe. Again, those people aren't killing each other. So then who's responsible for the for these bloody massacres in Syria? Is it the, uh, and I'm talking about places like Hula and Homs and Al-Kubair, is it the Syrian army? as we've been told in the media, or are these, again, outside insurgents uh, calling themselves the Free Syrian Army? Oh, it's absolutely the outside insurgents. The army has nothing to do with it. The people that are being targeted, Richard, are pro-Assad loyalists, Bashar Assad, the president of Syria, loyalists, people that are loyal to the government, that want the violence ended, 
who want Syria restored to peace and calm. They're the ones being targeted. And, uh, and, and, and the UN and the Western nations, they all know what's going on, but they lie and they feed people a pack of goods and they literally blame Assad for the crimes of these insurgents. Once in a while, a legitimate story gets into a major paper. The Spiegel wrote about it. The Spiegel wrote about uh, these death squads running around. McClatchy newspapers in the last week or two wrote about the same thing. Not the way I write about it. Not the way people who end up on real progressive websites write about it in great detail and what's going on and who wins and who loses and why these things are happening. But they put out legitimate information that's very important and there have been some, some Western journalists who have really told the story right, but the, but the people doing the most killing are these insurgents. I think the Syrian army is doing what, what it can to minimize civilian casualties, but when you're fighting people who hide themselves away in neighborhoods and secrete themselves in homes of people, I mean, they literally go in and they can either say, either, either go along with us or we'll kill you, or in some cases maybe they do kill them, You've got to do something to get rid of these people or they'll just stay there and make things worse. So the army has to go in. And in all wars, even the best of them, innocent people die. Civilians are the ones who are always harmed the most. But it's these, it's these insurgents, their death squads, their, death, their Western enlisted death squads that are going around causing the problems. Exactly the same thing that went on in Libya. And uh, Al-Qaeda is very much involved uh, Hillary Clinton admitted in, in Syria they were there in Libya. They called themselves the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, an organization that's on the U.S. State Department terrorist list, but yet they were enlisted by America and other NATO countries to go in and kill Libyans, and now they're doing it in Syria. Stephen Lenman is with us, independent journalist, host of the Progressive Radio News Hour. We're talking about the deplorable situation in Syria, and Stephen says it's not what it appears to be or not as it's being portrayed by the Western media. What can you tell me about Syrian President Bashir al-Assad? When I see him on TV, he doesn't strike me as a bloody, iron-fisted despot, not like his, his late father, the former president. He seems rational, reasonable. He seems to genuinely care about his people. Now, I've not met him, but I'm told by colleagues that he genuinely wants reform and and was, in fact, introducing widespread reform. What are your thoughts on Assad? Oh, I absolutely agree, Richard. I think he's a guy who never wanted to be the president of Syria. It's a shame that the job was passed on from father to son. Uh, Bashar is a doctor. He uh, was educated, I think, largely in Great Britain. He's a doctor. I don't know what his field is, but he's a doctor. And when you look at him, he doesn't look like the typical head of state. And I think I think that he really, uh, given uh, his preference, would have preferred to practice medicine rather than uh, uh, rule uh, any country, let alone Syria. Syria is an authoritarian state. But they really have done some marvelous things in the past year since the crisis broke out, broke out in winter 2011. It's been going on for, for some time now, and there's no end in sight to it. But last March, I believe it was, uh, a new constitution was formed. I wrote about it. I wrote about it twice, I think. Uh, they had an, a, an original draft, and there were, there were things in it or possibly left out that people didn't like. They changed it. And they put the Constitution to a national referendum. America has never, 
never had a national referendum, especially on something as important as a constitution. But but the Syrian government wanted the wanted the people to decide. Do you want these things? They they not only wanted the new constitution, they voted overwhelmingly for it. And then in May, they had their first ever really legitimate parliamentary elections. And they had outside international observers come in, and they judged the elections open, free, and fair. And I believe they were, and they were wonderful. And the ruling party won a 60% majority, but there were opposition people uh, elected to parliament. It was a legitimate operation, and the West put it down, calling it a farce and the rest of it. It was not a farce. I think it was far more legitimate than the election America is going to have in November, where corporate-run electronic voting machines control everything. You put your vote in for candidate A, and candidate B can get two votes. What kind of an election is that? And then you've got, you really don't have two parties competing. You've got one party with two wings. I think the opposition parties in Syria are much more legitimate than they are in America, and they end up uh, winning uh, positions in the parliament. But it certainly doesn't happen in America. You don't see Green Party members ending up in America's Congress, or even Libertarians, and uh, there are a number of independent parties that run, but they win a minute fraction of the vote because the system is rigged to, to, to be sure that you either get Republicans or Democrats in office, and they're really just two wings of the same party, and the late Corvidal called them, he used two terms, either the property party or the money party, and that really is the way to characterize them. They certainly don't serve the ordinary people of the country. I wish people would realize that and absolutely spurn them both. All right, Stephen Lenneman, stay put in Chicago, and uh, we'll reconnoiter on the other side and continue to discuss what you are dubbing the fake Arab Spring. Not at all what is being portrayed and uh, to us in the mainstream media and what's going on in Syria. Again, your perspective, very different, radically different than what we're being, I guess, spoon-fed. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides, you're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Question everything, indeed. Like Syria, for example. We're led to believe that uh, President uh, Bashar al-Assad is a ruthless dictator and that the uh, Syrian uh, security forces, the Syrian army, has perpetrated crimes against humanity, horrible massacres, slaughtering their own civilians. Uh, and that the Syrian people want a regime change. My guest, Stephen Lenman, says that's not true. Syria, along with many of these other uh, countries in the Middle East that have experienced uprisings, have in fact been instigated, orchestrated by NATO, the United States, England, Germany, France. These countries have been targeted for regime change, and Syria is no different. These are outside insurgents that have come in and stirred up this trouble and are committing these horrible massacres. Stephen, if this is in fact, Syria is is in fact uh, a NATO operation, why are they doing this? Syria has no oil. They grow grain. They have some tourism. It's a secular state. The Ba'ath Party has a lot of faults and a pretty dark and bloody past, but... The Syrian people are well taken care of. 
They have free health care, free education, no poverty to speak of. Why does the U.S. and NATO want a regime change in Syria? Well, one of the reasons would be that he gives benefits to the people, even though Syria doesn't have the same wealth that uh, that Libya had under Gaddafi. Gaddafi gave marvelous, absolutely marvelous benefits, including some that were really astonishing, Richard. Newlyweds got a $50,000 stipend. Can you imagine that? A $50,000 stipend. There was no homelessness. Uh, Gaddafi wanted everybody to have a home and free education, free health care. He paid for education overseas for qualified students that wanted to stay abroad, uh, uh, Syria did what it could with the resources it had. But the common theme, the common thread in all these countries, whether it's Afghanistan or Iraq or Libya or Syria and Iran, it isn't their form of government. It's the fact that they're independent. They're not in the West's pocket. They're not a Western puppet state. They don't follow the Western party line. Oh, sure, they, they, they do a lot of things that are the same things that go on in Western countries, but they maintain their individual sovereignty above all else. So they're independent. America wants regimes that they, ha- that they control, that they have in their pocket. So they control, they control the other states of the Middle East, uh, the Saudis and the Bahrainis and the Qataris, and uh, they all play ball together, one hand feeds the other. But the independent states absolutely reserve a certain amount of autonomy to govern their countries the way they wish, regardless of how the West feels. That's a no-no in Washington and in Britain and in France and, I guess, Italy and Germany, the major NATO countries. And those are the countries that get targeted for regime change. And what few people realize is that the plans for this began early in the 1990s. I don't know whether the genesis could have even been earlier than that. Very, I guess Iran, I, I, I think it began in 1979 or very shortly after that. But against the other countries, let's say the beginning of the 1990s, and I think the initial mastermind was Paul Wolfowitz, who worked in the senior Bush administration, then came into uh, George W. Bush's administration. And uh, in the late 1990s, we had an organization form called Project for the New American Century, PNAC. Uh, PNAC uh, uh, said, well, I mean, we can't do these things unless we have some kind of a catalyzing uh, event like a new Pearl Harbor, a new Pearl Harbor. Well, voila, 9-11, there's your new Pearl Harbor uh, regime change. Uh, four weeks later, war with Afghanistan. It was a toss-up. Shall we go after Iraq or Afghanistan first? Well, how they made that decision, I'm not sure, but they went after Afghanistan first, then they went after Iraq, Libya was on the list, we've got Syria, Iran is on the list, uh, Sudan was on the list, now it's been balkanized, so it's northern Sudan that's on the list, Somalia, uh, any other country that, that is independent, and these are all in, in, in the Middle East, North African, Central Asian area. Uh, in other parts of the world, you've got countries too. I'm sure Ecuador is on the list now. I think Ecuador has been on the list, but even more so now. Venezuela, Hugo Chavez, goes on and on. Any right. nation that values its own sovereignty above America's, they get targeted for regime change. Stephen, I don't understand why the U.S. and NATO would ignite these fires across the Middle East and then not think about the consequences. So they get rid of Mubarak, but instead Egypt is now ruled by the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, And who knows who will take over after Assad. 
Uh, Syria could become a, a radical Muslim state like Iran ruled by the, I don't know, the Wahhabists. How could that be a good situation for U.S. And, or, or NATO? Well, I think that, that the Wahhabis uh, in Saudi Arabia, I think they're a little bit uh, over the top for Washington. But the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, most people don't realize that they go back to the 1920s, initially under a different name, and I think they changed their name to the Muslim Brotherhood in the late 1920s. All along, they were very closely tied to British intelligence, MI6, or whatever British intelligence was called way back then. And when the CIA was created in 1947, they were tied with the CIA. And the tip-off is, when Morsi was elected president, Muslim Brotherhood, Obama called him and congratulated him. Now, if this is in Egypt. Uh, this is in Egypt. We should clarify. Yeah. <laughs> if he was the kind of guy that Washington just deplored, absolutely deplored. I mean, you would have seen the screaming headlines in the New York Times and on Fox News and the rest of it, just berating this guy. But I mean, they they endorse him. They like him. Uh, congratulations on being elected. I think the election was a sham. And I talk about things uh, in the Middle East, I've said it in other, in other contexts as well, the, the so-called Arab Spring, that's a Western term, it's not, it's not a regional term. I like to say everything changed but stayed the same, Richard. There really isn't much different today than a year ago in the Middle East or two years ago. So Mubarak is gone in Egypt, and you've got Morsi in. Uh, a couple of generals. I, I, would, I, I would have loved to have written about that, and I may end up doing it, but I'm not certain whether what I think happened, in fact, did happen, and I have no way to prove it. But the two, as a top general, and I believe, if not his number two, another one of the top ones, the headlines were that Morsi dumped them and replaced them with two other generals. Well, did Morsi dump them? Or did other generals dump their own and just come in in their place? I mean, did Morsi only make the announcement, but the generals actually make the decision? Egypt has been run by by uh, the general Scaf for decades. It goes back uh, at least to Gabdul Abdul Nasser, I think, before him. I mean, four, five, six decades. It's always been the generals that have run Egypt. And, and, and usually the presidents and the top officials are former high-ranking military officers. Mubarak uh, was a general. I believe he was a general. But he certainly was a high-ranking officer. Morsi, I believe, is different. But he's very closely tied with the U.S. and, and, and Western interests. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood has always been business-friendly, very close to bankers. So it rings the, 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 the familiar bells that this is a guy that Washington would be very delighted to have in power. So you've got a new face, but you've got the old policies. You've got the old generals out. You've got new generals in. Uh, and the way it was set up by the old generals were that they had the power to override anybody who ran the country. They had the power to appoint the prime minister. And if they didn't like what the president of the parliament were doing, they had veto power. I don't think that's changed. Well, explain to me, I'm trying to understand, if Mubarak, for example, in Egypt, uh, was not forced out by these protests and this uprising, uh, but rather it was engineered behind the scenes by the U.S. or NATO, how do they do it? 
Well, how they build the schemes, I sure don't know, Richard. The details of what they do, they certainly were working close to the, with the generals, and Mubarak fell out of favor years ago. He mostly went along with U.S. policies, and in that respect, he was fine. And don't forget, he was around for a few decades, so he mostly got along with what uh, America and the West wanted to do. But there were some important things that he opposed. He opposed the Iraq War in 2003. I think that alone was the kiss of death. So uh, the uh, the long knives were out for him. It was just a matter of time when they were going to put the knife in his back. And they orchestrated a, a scheme to get rid of him, and they concocted this Arab Spring. At the same time, the protests in the streets by ordinary people, that was very real. All across the region, those protests are absolutely real. The problem is they're not getting what they're protesting for. They want they want a living wage. They want corruption, at least cut way, way back. They want to live in a decent country without without uh, dictators running things. That's all the Bahrainis want. They simply they they want something resembling a democracy. They want they want some say in choosing their government. They don't like the idea of a of a despot posing as a monarch, uh, supported by Western powers, running the country like like a private fiefdom. That's all they want, and a decent job. And they want to be treated just the way others are treated. So the Sunnis get the prime treatment in uh, in uh, uh, Bahrain and in other countries, and the Shias get marginalized. Well, that's not a fair system. They want that change, especially when they're the major- majority in the country, and they are. So they've been protesting for that. They haven't gotten it. They haven't gotten anything in Egypt. Tunisia, if, if at most they've gotten a few cosmetic differences, but there's still a lot of anger, anger in Tunisia, and I honestly expect to see the protests break out again because nothing much has changed. And it's, you could go right across the region from Oman and Yemen. You know, we, we <laughs> Yemen, uh, they got rid of the old president, and a new guy came in, elected, not elected, appointed. So you've got a new face, same old policies, Go across to the other end of the country, Morocco, same stuff. The people have gotten nothing, but the, but the complaints of the people are absolutely legitimate, and I, I am absolutely with them. They deserve everything they're protesting for, and if they, if, if they get out again and they keep doing this, one day they're going to get it. They're very courageous. I wish we saw more of that in the West. You mentioned Bahrain, protests, uprisings there. Uh, and yet we don't hear a UN Security Council calling for a no-fly zone or airstrikes or an embargo against Bahrain. I'm wondering whether, I, I ask sarcastically, whether it might uh, have something to do uh, with the fact that Bahrain uh, hosts the U.S. Uh, Navy's Fifth Fleet. Absolutely, home to the U.S. Fifth Fleet, lots, lots, lots of uh, powerful ships there. And uh, even if the fleet weren't there, America would absolutely support the regime. Uh, there's no Fifth Fleet in the, in uh, in Kuwait. Well, America just stations forces there. Uh, no Fifth Fleet in Kuwait, but the U.S. forces there. You've got uh, a military operation in Qatar. One of the commands is, uh, I think, has has two headquarters locations. One in South Florida, and I think the other is in Qatar. Uh, so, so all of this ties together. Okay, yeah, we've got to, uh, got to uh, jump in here, Stephen. Uh, sorry, music creeping up. It's time to uh, take a break. We'll reassemble on the other side, continue to discuss the plight of Syria and the fake Arab Spring here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
to get to the truth. Call Richard now at 416-360-0740. Welcome back. It's called the Humanitarian Doctrine. This is, uh, uh, I guess that that, uh, that term was coined by the uh, the British, um, and this is the the justification for NATO uh, targeting countries like Libya and Syria. But it's ironic. You have you have Saudi Arabia. There's this horrible regime there. Much much of the country lives in poverty. Uh, women are denied basic human rights. Uh, they employ torture regularly, yet they've cozied up to the United States. Uh, Bahrain, again, same, same situation. They, um, uh, the, the people there have been, have been protesting, and yet no security council, uh, uh, security council call for an airstrike. So, so Stephen Lendman, uh, why then are they, are they picking on Syria and not Bahrain? Well, the difference is one country is an ally and the other country is an enemy. It really comes down to that. But uh, but Syria is paradise for, for, the, for the people in Syria before the conflict began compared to what the Bahrainis are going through. It really is absolutely nightmarish where people come out nonviolently. It's, it's astonishing the tolerance that the people have, and it's astonishing what they're putting up with, the brutality that the government, along with Saudi Arabia, that's connected to Bahrain by a causeway, and they're very concerned with any real change coming to Bahrain, because if it really does, or if the monarchy gets deposed, that would be one of Saudi's worst nightmares, because what happens in Bahrain could happen to them next. And there were protests going on in Saudi Arabia now that get no attention whatever in the Western media, but in one part of the country especially, I believe it happens to be one of the oil-rich areas, there are people that are very upset about what they've lived under for so many years, and they want the same things that the Egyptians wanted and the Bahrainis wanted. They simply want to live in a decent country and be treated like human beings. But the government, the Saudis, aren't doing it for most people. Poverty in, in this very, very wealthy country Poverty is off the charts. I wrote a recent article about Saudi Arabia, where by one estimate, and they don't keep good records there, but by one estimate from a, from an insider who has some knowledge to make a reasonable effort, he believes that poverty is 60%. 60% in a country is oil-rich, where the wealth is beyond counting. I think it's so immense that they that count those hundreds of billions of dollars that they pull in. But they keep it for themselves, and they do what they want with it, and they, and they put it into Western investments and so on and so forth, and they do practically nothing for most of the people in the country. Well, sooner or later, there will be protests. This is a vile regime. It needs to be overthrown. But the Saudis are in Bahrain uh, supporting the Bahraini regime, and they're really merciless against their own people. And anybody who goes up against the regime, especially activists, independent journalists, even doctors that treat injured people, people injured protesting, doctors doing it are arrested. They're put on trial. They're convicted and they're put in prison. Imagine that, a country that would do something like that. And the prisons are bulging with political prisoners. I just wrote about a political prisoner, uh, uh, Rashid. I'll get his name wrong. Rajab is his last name. Rajab is his last name. He's a founder of uh, 
I believe, at least two human rights organizations. He's a member of and on the board of and very closely involved with a number of human rights organizations. And for for uh, being out in a protest or two or three and speaking publicly and making a couple of Twitter remarks about the regime and simply wanting justice, that's all that he wants. That's all that ordinary people want. He was serving a three-month sentence for one Twitter comment that he made. And just a day or two ago, he was sentenced to three years in prison to silence him, and they can go after him any time and do anything they want to him. There's another man that I wrote about, uh, a co-founder of one of the organizations that Rajab is involved with. See if I can pronounce his name. Uh, Alakawaja, I think that's a close enough pronunciation. He is the man who went on a hunger strike. I believe it lasted 104 or maybe 110 days. And for a number of days at the end, he began ingesting enough nutrients to keep himself alive. For a while, he was being force-fed, and then he voluntarily decided to take certain nutrition, not eat the way you or I would eat, but take certain nutrition to keep himself alive and yet maintain what he could call a hunger strike. And it it went on in excess of 100 days. It's impossible to imagine that, but he came very close to death a number of times. And he was so committed to what he believes in that he simply wouldn't quit. He's still in prison as far as I know. Well, if ever there was a glaring example of uh, hypocrisy in the uh, the U.S. foreign policy, it is that they would cozy up to these, as you call them, vile regimes in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, uh, and yet target countries like Syria uh, for regime change. Very cynical uh, reason, regime change. Not to in- improve the plight of the people, but because they want a proxy state. Stay with us, Stephen Lenman, back with more of The Conspiracy Show, The Fake Arab Spring. Don't go away. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740. Welcome back. The online poll question up at uh, richardserrett.com. Is Colorado gunman James Holmes a Manchurian candidate? Uh, Thus far, 67.6% say yes, he is. 22.1% 22.1% of you say, no, he is not, and 10.3% of you are not sure. Again, that's the online poll question at richardserrett.com. Back to the fake Arab Spring. Steve Lendeman joins us from Chicago. You know, I never thought I'd say this, uh, uh, Stephen, but um, I'm kind of happy that China and Russia are around these days. If it weren't for China and Russia vetoing these uh, UN Security Council resolutions, we'd have we'd have NATO airstrikes in Syria. We might even have boots on the ground there. Oh, I think Iran very much is on the list. Uh, the countries on the target list in the Middle East would be Syria, Hezbollah in Lebanon. Lebanon is a strange country where they have a, uh, I think they call it a confessional system where the different religious sects automatically get a certain share of the government. Well, Hezbollah uh, is uh, an elected part of the government. And they're not, they're not belligerent. They're very belligerent in self-defense, but they're not aggressive. They don't go after anybody to cause conflict with them. They don't want a conflict with Israel or anybody else, but they're very ready to defend themselves if they're attacked. And when Israel attacked Lebanon in 2006 and just raised hell 
over the country, especially in the South. Hezbollah fought back valiantly, and and they embarrassed the Israeli military. Uh, there was great destruction and uh, people displacement and people killed by uh, Israel. Uh, Syria, uh, Israel casualties were minimal, but really the, the fight that Hezbollah put up was really extraordinary. And again, they embarrassed the Israeli military. Uh, Hezbollah is a lot more powerful now with weapons that can target Israeli cities. And if Israel attacks Lebanon again, Hezbollah has promised to respond very, very forcefully, and I think they literally could raise, could raid hell down on Israeli cities, which may make any government uh, hesitate to go to war with them. But it's still possible because they're on the list for removal. But the key one is Iran, and the, and, and the comment that, that really explains things is that the road to Tehran runs through Damascus. The idea is to separate these close allies. They have a very close alliance. They both have strong militaries, and if you can if you can defeat Syria and replace Assad and get another pro-Western government in place, that will isolate Iran and uh, make it an easier target to go after. Certainly not easy, because Iran has a strong military. It has weapons that can strike Israel. It can strike U.S. forces in the region. And I use I I'm very blunt about. Uh, talking about a, a war with Iran, aside from the fact that there's no justification for it at all. Iran has no nuclear weapons program. I don't say that. U.S. intelligence says it. The IAE inspectors say it. Not the Secretary General, the new one. The previous one, Al Baraday, said it. But the new one is, uh, is, a, is a Western tool. He supports Western interests. He was handpicked to be Washington's man, a man named uh, Yukio Amano. And uh, Mohammed al-Baradei was a different kind of guy. Not perfect, but he at least got, uh, told it mostly straight. So uh, 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 Yamato is lying, but the inspectors who go in are telling the truth. There is no country in the world more heavily inspected nuclear-wise than Iran. Israel has nuclear weapons. Nobody has ever once inspected Israel. Israel wouldn't let them, and nobody asked. So why Iran? Lots of countries have the same program Iran has. Why complain about Iran and not complain about the others? Well, anyway, Iran is on the list, but they are strong, and they can put up a heck of a fight. But uh, they don't have nuclear weapons, and if Israel or if Washington gives... Well, Israel has got its own weapons. If they start lobbying nuclear weapons at Iran to go after underground facilities, and it may take a nuclear weapon to be able to penetrate and cause any kind of damage, if they do that... I think it's Katie by the door. That's the kind of war, Richard, I call madness, absolute madness, because Iran would 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 retaliate as strongly as it could. I mean, literally, there would be a risk of the entire region becoming embroiled and get and <laughs> dare I say, uh, going up in flames in the sense that there would be a catastrophe. And there's a very good chance that Russia would get involved, that China could get involved because they have important interests in the region they don't want to lose. Are they going to let Syria and Iran go down the drain so they'll just be dumped from the region entirely? And then uh, America creeps closer to their borders, and ultimately they're the final targets, and they know it. I don't think they want that to happen. I hope there's a red line that they will not allow Washington and the West to cross. And I'd like to see them get more aggressive. I've said this too, Richard. 
But bullies like Washington like to go after enemies that are easy to bowl over, just like a schoolyard bully. Schoolyard bullies don't like to fight people who can fight back. I don't think Washington wants a real confrontation with Russia or China. Maybe someday, but I don't think this is the day. And if Russia and China laid the law down and said, you will not cross this line, or you're going to be, you're going to be facing our forces, well, that, I think America would back off. Well, that's an excellent point. I mean, I never thought I'd say this, but thank God for China and Russia. Uh, I don't know if... if I'm not sure about uh, Vladimir Putin. I don't think he's Thomas Jefferson, but I don't think he's Satan either. But at least he's providing an important countervalence to uh, to what's you know to the uh, American imperialism uh, and, and NATO uh, misadventures. Now uh, let's get back to Syria for a minute. What do you think is going to happen to uh, Assad there? Is he going to survive this? Will he be offered asylum? Will he face the same fate as Mubarak? Will he be charged and convicted as a war criminal? I'm very worried in the end he may get beaten no matter what he does. I'm reminded of the Balkan Wars in the 1990s. They went on for the whole decade. And Yugoslavia was one country when they began, and it was about half a dozen countries when it ended. And we had the horrors. Uh, the West didn't, the West got involved a little bit in the mid-1990s, NATO, uh, in a modest way. But then we had the horrors of 1999, 78 days. 78 days, uh, three and a half months of intensive bombing, and Kosovo and Serbia, which absolutely ravaged. So from then to now, over a dozen years later, they still haven't recovered from it. And they used depleted uranium. They just irradiated vast parts of the countries. Uh, Kosovo, a part of Serbia, was forcibly separated and made a separate country. As far as I'm concerned, they're no country. They're a bogus country. I mean, can you imagine a New England separated from the U.S. by a foreign power and made uh, a separate country against the will of the rest of America? Well, that's what happened to Serbia. So the West did that. Uh, it was nightmarish. And a U.S. general, Wesley Clark, was the one who led the operation. And I, have, I fear that uh, we'll see a repeat of the Balkan Wars in, uh, against Syria. And there was no U.N. resolution to start that war in 1999, NATO went around uh, the Security Council and did it on its own. So they did it then. They set a precedent. And I think in the end, they'll end up doing it again if they want to. Well, it's funny you mentioned uh, General, former General Wesley Clark, former presidential uh, uh, candidate, General uh, Clark. And he stated back in 91, he was at a meeting at the White House with Paul Wolfowitz. There's that name again, former Deputy Secretary of Defense in the Bush Senior Administration and an architect of the Iraq War. He told Clark, apparently, that the U.S. in 1991 had a 20-year window to redraw the geopolitical lines in the world and to make regime changes as it saw fit, create these client states before another world power would rise and then the window would close. And then Wolfowitz proceeded to rhyme off about a dozen states the U.S. would overthrow. Yugoslavia, Iraq, Syria, Sudan, Somalia. So Clark was right. That's exactly what's happened over the last 20 years. He sure has. He wrote a book about it, Winning Modern Wars. And he went back again, Richard, uh, about a month or two after 9-11. And uh, he was a four-side general then. And uh, I, there were still half a dozen or so countries on the list. And he heard the list read to him again, and I, I think uh, I think Wolfowitz was the was the incubator of this scheme. And uh, a Cheney, I think Cheney at one time was a congressman, and then he became defense secretary. 
he had a lot of jobs in past administrations before becoming a defense secretary, a vice president, I'm sorry, for uh, George W. Bush. But, uh, but, uh, he got closely allied with, uh, Wolfowitz and, uh, and, uh, 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 Donald Rumsfeld became involved, and he goes back a long way too. I think really those three were probably the main co-conspirators. And uh, you've got the uh, Project for a New American Century, TNAC, uh, late 1990s. They talked about needing a catalyzing event to launch uh, the real campaign that they wanted to rev up and get going on. They, they had this window of a decade or so. I guess the window was about over, but certainly the stuff is going on. They're not going to close the window unless they have to. But uh, they got their second Pearl Harbor, 9/11. Certainly, uh, not the not 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 the formal story we're all told. And we have another 9/11 anniversary coming up. Uh, I'm certain that topic will come up on my program. And uh, and uh, uh, and here we go again, one war after another, beginning with Afghanistan. Now we're up to Syria. Iran is next. Uh, maybe uh, Hezbollah comes after that. And, uh, you know, whoever they want to knock off, they'll knock off. And, and if the wrong kind of leader pops up in one of the countries that used to have a uh, pro-Western leader, they'll get rid of that guy and they'll put somebody else in his place. And they can do it lots of ways. That You, you know, you can either have a coup or you can assassinate the guy. You could have a uh, an unfortunate air accident. Or uh, if uh, push comes to shove, you can go to war. Well, and the sad fact is, it doesn't matter who gets in, Romney or Obama, it'll be the same policy. Uh, no question, these are anxious times we're living in. And uh, Stephen, I thank you for giving us all uh, a really radical, a radically different uh, perspective on what's going on in places like uh, Syria. Thanks again. Oh, Richard, I enjoyed it very much. Happy to come on anytime. This is big stuff. Everybody needs to know about one final comment. Everything we talked about is in the interest of every one of your listeners, Richard. Uh, the, all of these, all of these uh, issues we're talking about touch their lives uh, directly and, and it harms them. And we all need to protect ourselves and our families and our loved ones. I sure feel that way. Absolutely. All right. Stephen Lenman is the host of the Progressive Radio News Hour and uh, also writes a blog. And I've hooked, I've uh, linked up to his um, his blog on. Uh, my web- website at richardserrett.com. So just go to the homepage at richardserrett.com, scroll down, and you'll see tonight's uh, uh, show. And under the fake Arab Spring, you'll see Stephen's name, Stephen Lenman. You click on that, and that'll take you to his uh, blog, which is sjlendman.blogspot.ca. I have to have Stephen on again. Great interview. All right, listen, we've got, we've got some great uh, programs up and coming. Uh, Ed Decker will be along and not in the not-too-distant future to talk about Freemasonry. Is it a, a misunderstood fraternity or a satanic cult, as some uh, would have you believe? And we'll also talk about near-death experiences. Thanks uh, to David Gaskin for uh, production, as always. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing re- uh, concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night.